Hi, and welcome to Lakeshore Update. I'm Dee Dodson. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear the latest on Community Utilities of Indiana proposing a nearly 50% rate increase. Michael Gallenberger reports on the narrowing list of projects to receive American Rescue Plan funding in Portage. And Chris Nolte has a conversation with Julie Wejack, the Interim Executive Director for Undergraduate Admissions at Purdue University Northwest about the new dual admission partnership with Ivy Tech Community College. All of that and more on this edition of Lakeshore Update. Residents in Lake, Porter, Newton, and Jasper counties could see their water rates doubled and sewer rates increasing by as much as 56% over the next one and a half years. That's according to the Times of Northwest Indiana. Community Utilities of Indiana, a new utility, is requesting permission to increase rates to 5,300 water customers and 3,500 sewer customers. Community Utilities is asking for a two-tier rate increase, the first beginning in October of this year and the second in October of 2023. The proposed rate hike would increase 5,000 gallons of water from $42.44 to $76.25 later this year and up to $82.60 in October of next year. The sewer rate increase for 5,000 gallons a month would increase from $61.34 to $86.33 later this year and up to $95.83 in October of next year. The would-be affected customers include Merrillville residents who were previously served by Indiana Water Service, lakes of four seasons in both Lake and Porter counties, previously served by Twin Lakes Utilities, as well as residents in Jasper and Newton counties who were previously served by Water Service Corporation. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The ability to buy South Shoreline tickets on the train could soon be going away. Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District President Mike Nolan says ticket sales have increasingly been moving toward digital options like ticket vending machines and the South Shoreline mobile app. But conductors and collectors continue to accept cash payments on board. Our ticket vending machines did not take cash. It would have required someone to have a credit card or a debit card, and not every member of our society, the unbanked and the underbanked, don't have that flexibility. But the railroad's newest vending machines do not accept cash, and once the kinks are worked out, Nolan wants to revisit the idea of taking cash off the trains. There's a number of reasons why that's good. Cash um, is difficult to manage. It takes away from the conductors and collectors' primary duty, which is safety, and their secondary duty, which is customer service, if they're, if they're making a cash transaction with multiple people coming on the train. Nolan says the change would save the railroad money, but would also be a safety enhancement. Back in February, a Metro conductor was reportedly robbed at gunpoint at Chicago's Van Buren station, which the South Shore Line also uses. 
But Nickty Police Chief Jesse Watts Jr. says the South Shore Line itself has not had any major issues in almost 20 years. Nolan told the Nickty Board last week that he may request an official policy change this summer. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. There's been a shift in how people work and want to work, and it hasn't just been caused by COVID-19. It's a permanent change, according to some experts in the field. The Center for Workforce Innovations is creating a series of conversations to help employers understand the shift. Lisa Darty is the president and CEO of the center. She told Lakeshore Public Radio that the series begins on April 21st with an in-person breakfast event at Avalon Manor in Merrillville. Sophie Wade is the first speaker of the group that the center interviewed and invited to the series. Wade is described as a work futurist and an authority on future of work issues. What I found most interesting about her is that she didn't just have kind of a a spiel that, you know, was general, so general that, you know, people could relate to it. But when we started asking her questions about specific industries, she could go deep on what some creative, inexpensive solutions are. For more information about the first event in the Workforce Innovation Speaker Series, please visit the Center of Workforce Innovation's website, cwicorp.com. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The Lake Central School Corporation could get thousands of dollars to help students through potential emergencies. During Monday's school board meeting, the Lake Central Education Foundation announced it will provide a matching grant of up to $10,000 to purchase emergency buckets. School Resource Officer Brian Kissinger says they're designed to be used during school lockdowns. You know, September 8th, we experienced something that we had students locking down for hours on end, and this bucket is for them to help with any kind of needs during a crisis. So, and that's something that we want to, you know, expand throughout the whole Lake Central Corporation. Education Foundation co-president Louise Talent said school officials applied for a grant to purchase the buckets for Kaler Middle School, but it didn't meet the foundation's regular criteria, leading the foundation to provide a larger seed grant instead. The Lake Central Education Foundation also awarded 10 grants totaling over $6,300 to help with classroom materials. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The Portage City Council is narrowing the list of projects to receive American Rescue Plan funding. Lakeshore Public Radio's Michael Gallenberger reports. The city has already spent more than $364,000 and allocated another 800000 And Tuesday, Council Member Scott Williams presented a plan for the other $7.2 million Portage expects to get. I didn't just pull these figures out of the air. I took copious notes when the police presented their needs, when the fire presented their needs, when the street just their needs. 
His proposal would allocate $1.6 million to the street department, $1.2 million to the fire department, and another $1.2 to the police department for vehicles, equipment, and possibly training. $1 million would go toward clarifier upgrades at the treatment plant, and half a million would be used to make up a shortfall in the park department's operating budget. One topic of discussion was which nonprofits should get a share of Portage's American Rescue Plan funds. Williams proposed 300000 each toward the Portage Township YMCA's new pool and the Porter County Public Library's proposed outdoor park, plus 100000 toward neighbors' educational opportunities. But others felt the American Legion, VFW, and the city's marina should also get funds. Councilmember Pat Clem wanted to use $350,000 to hire new employees for the police, fire, and street departments, while others questioned how the city would fund those positions once that money runs out. Clem argued residents deserve quality services, but Mayor Sue Lynch felt they also deserve quality of life. So when you take 50 or 60 kids off the street and you put them in a pool, they're not out there getting in trouble, they're learning water safety, you can laugh in my face, Pat. But you need to smoke. you got to follow the streets to get to the right. You're, you're creating a false choice between the two. About a million dollars would be left for unplanned expenses, and Council President Callan Zilli noted that the city faces pending litigation that may require funds. Residents will have the chance to weigh in on the proposal during a public hearing before council members formally approve the spending plans. For Lakeshore News, I'm Michael Gallenberger. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Three candidates have been selected by Governor Eric Holcomb for the state Supreme Court to fill the vacancy being left by retiring Judge Stephen David this fall. One of those candidates is a Northwest Indiana native, according to the Times. Judge Derek Moulter from Newton County serves on the Indiana Court of Appeals. Holcomb appointed Moulter to the Court of Appeals late last year. Holcomb said of that appointment, Moulton is, quote, a leader in the Indiana legal community, end quote. Holcomb continued, he has written countless articles and is looked at as an expert in his field, but most importantly, he has a Hoosier heart. The two other candidates are Grant Superior Judge Dana Kenworthy and Attorney Justin Forkner. Once the three nominees' names are sent to Holcomb, the Republican governor will have 60 days to choose one of them as David's successor when he retires from the court. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. The candidates for local offices on the May 3rd primary election ballot are being asked to sign what's called an ethics pledge ahead of the election. Shared Ethics Advisory Commission Board member Julie McElmurray told Lakeshore Public Radio that with only a few days left to sign the pledge, She's disappointed that only about 22% of the primary election candidates have signed. I think people might read into this pledge more than it really is. Um, And I think given the divisive uh, (laughs) world we have right now, many people might look at um, the word ethics and have different reactions to it. But this is a very, very basic pledge. 
The deadline to sign the pledge was April 8th. The Shared Ethics Advisory Commission plans to publicize a list of those candidates who signed the ethics pledge to give voters a guide about the candidates ahead of going to the polls. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Republicans are confident they can take back Indiana congressional districts that they have not held since the 1930s. Network Indiana's Kurt Darling reports. Indiana's first congressional district in northwest Indiana has been held by Democrats since 1931. Congressman Frank Mervan represents the district at the moment, but Republicans plan to pump a lot of campaign money into the district this time around. Former LaPorte Mayor Blair Milo hopes that she is the one to take on Mervan. We need to fight back against a number of the policies that are being advanced that are so harmful for Hoosiers in northwest Indiana. On all Indiana politics, she says Republicans are starting to show that the district is not as Democratic as as it appears. Kirk Darling, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. It's no secret the pandemic has negatively impacted Americans' mental health. Cases of anxiety and depression have skyrocketed, and fatal overdoses have hit record levels. But Mitch Ligon reports that two years into the pandemic, alcohol consumption is still up. And recovery experts are concerned about the potential impacts. The beginning of the coronavirus pandemic was a stressful time for Americans. With people stuck at home and unsure of the future, many turned to alcohol to cope. Studies reported a 50% spike in drinking initially, with levels remaining elevated throughout 2020. But addiction experts say it's still an issue that could have serious consequences down the road. Spencer Medcalf seeing it firsthand at IU Health folks presenting or at least getting referred to our services, it began to increase um, and has been increasing to this day. Medcalf oversees peer recovery services for emergency rooms across the IU health system. When someone arrives at an ER with substance-related issues, he connects them with recovery services and pathways to treatment. The number of patients he sees with alcohol issues has soared since the pandemic, increasing 65 percent from 2019. Last month's numbers were the highest for a February since the program started. Prior to COVID, what we were seeing were folks that maybe were drinking, you know, five to six beers or maybe kind of at that level where they didn't really need inpatient detox or things of that nature. And now I would say most patients that we're seeing um, related to alcohol are almost slam dunk cases for inpatient detox. Medcalf says the people he's helping fall into two main groups, those whose recovery was interrupted by COVID and those who began drinking more because of it. For Matt Cochran, the pandemic pushed him back to the bottle. He was recovering from alcoholism in March of 2020, but had trouble dealing with the stress that came with the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was it was more of a relief, a stress relief in the evenings when I get home. It got to the point then where it was I was a lot more dependent on it. It got to the point where Cochran was drinking throughout the day, so he checked himself into treatment at Community Fairbanks Recovery Center in Indianapolis. Regular with a creamer, right? He's been sober for seven months now and volunteers at the coffee shop there to give back. Okay, you're welcome. Have a good day. Hello, sir. The scariest place for an alcoholic to be is isolating and not around anybody else. And you, and we're at home and there's, there's, there's nothing else you know, to really do, so we drink. As for those who started drinking more because of the pandemic, studies have shown women were impacted most. 
For many, it was a way to cope with the stresses of work or childcare, and it still hasn't let up for some, according to Brandon George, who helps oversee recovery services for Mental Health America of Indiana. You know, if you come home and, and your husband or wife is doing cocaine all of a sudden, that's a huge issue and a red flag, etc. Seeing, you know, your wife with a, a glass of wine on a Tuesday, is just not that big of a deal, you know. George says it'll take some time to feel the full scope of Hoosiers' increased drinking. Much of the pandemic data isn't yet available. But last year's tax revenues from alcoholic beverage sales were up $6.5 million from before the pandemic. As more people return to work, many are reconsidering their drinking habits over the past couple of years. Maybe somebody that used to start drinking at 5 or 6 o'clock starts drinking at 2 or 3 o'clock, or maybe somebody that used to have an afternoon drinks now having a morning drink. But without the accountability there, there's been no you know, consequence or no awareness about it. The impacts could mean more medical issues for heavy drinkers, or it could impact their jobs and family life if it hasn't already. There's not the same red flags you would have with other drug use um, that, that, you know, immediately show, hey, we should take a look at this because alcohol is so accepted. And there's often just such a delay. George says he's been in contact with people at the state house who are actively monitoring the situation. The hope is, with things opening back up, more community-centered recovery treatment will be available. And Hoosiers who have an issue will be able to get the help they need. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Mitch Legan. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Ivy Tech Community College and Purdue University Northwest now have a dual admissions partnership to offer students a guaranteed path to a four-year bachelor's degree. The program begins in the spring semester. Julie Wejack is the Interim Executive Director for Undergraduate Admissions at PNW. She told Lakeshore Public Radio host Chris Nolte that this is a way to guide Ivy Tech students further in their education options toward a career. They're basically just giant open houses for students, uh, prospective students and their families, um, parents, anyone they want to bring with them, siblings to come and see what PNW has to offer. So. We will be offering them chances to sit in breakout sessions with every college. So if you're a student who's interested in business, you're welcome to go to the business um, session and find out all the majors that are offered within the business college. Then there's a giant resource fair, which is housing about 75 tables of all clubs and uh, student life and other activities that we have on campus so that you get a great picture of what PNW has to offer. Then we have great breakout sessions where you can find out about being a commuter student, living in housing, financial aid, uh, admissions, anything that you know you might have questions about as a prospective student, we can help you answer those. And we're going to end the day with the thing we're most excited about, which mm-hmm. is our academic showcases. And these are going to be uh, professors and faculty that open up their classrooms to show prospective students and their families the cool stuff that we're doing at PNW. So think robot races, 3D printing, um, our nursing simulation labs are going to be open where the nursing faculty can control mannequins that act as patients for students to work on for a real-life hands-on nursing experience. So we're going to really um, open up our front door and invite these families to come in and get the best um, feeling that they can get about what it would be like for their, for their student to come to PNW. 
I know that there are obviously uh, two opportunities here, one for each campus. Uh, the first yeah. one is beginning on October 16th and the on the Hammond campus, and the second, November 13th, on the Westville campus. And both of them begin at 8.30 in the morning, so students will get to see a lot and learn a lot yeah. by coming to either campus. Are there many opportunities that uh, in these cases where, where students will come by and check either campus out, or maybe both of them? Uh, even though they're both Purdue University Northwest, they they're each have their own specific specific identity. Yes, so uh, students can are welcome to come to whatever one is more convenient for their families. Obviously, they'll get a better feel because there's campus tours and you'll go into buildings. So if you're somebody who lives in, the, in and around the Westville area, you know that you want to study there, we would recommend that you would try to go to that, to that mm -hmm. um, preview PNW. If you live in Hammond, obviously the same thing applies. Um, if you're undecided, you could go to either one because we will still give you a great picture of what it's like to be a PNW student. So even though both campuses are different and have different offerings and, you know, operate under the PNW umbrella and still give a student a very clear picture of what it would be like to be a part of PNW. When you have an opportunity like this to check out either the Hammond or the Westville campus, do you find that there are students that maybe would, as you mentioned, the family members will certainly have something to say if they, if their student wants to stay at home and just commute to campus, and a lot of students do. There may be a case, of, like in the case of the Hammond campus, where you might be able to, to live on campus if that opportunity comes up. Just a, more of an interest, I think, depending on, on whatever the student wants to do, or maybe is it a case that might be a particular discipline that they want to get involved in certain courses they want to take that they'll choose maybe one campus over another. Yeah, absolutely. So that is a great point. Uh, if you want to live in housing, that's offered on the Hammond campus. If you're more, you know, obviously you could still commute to the Hammond campus. If there is a certain uh, major that you're interested in, maybe that major is only offered on one or the other campus. So it is good if you know something very specific that you want to be a part of, that you could meet and talk to an admissions counselor and make sure that you know whether or not that's available on both, whether or not it's available on one, whether or not you'd have the opportunity to start at one and finish at the other. So we have a, a, a number of people on our staff, whether it's admissions or the advisors, who can self help counsel students through that to make sure that they know exactly what it's going to look like for them. So whether it's four years at one, two years at one, two years at the other, we can help them figure that out before they even enter into um, a certain major so that right. they know exactly what they're getting into. So they actually can shuttle between one ca one campus and the other, I guess, depending on how far enough along. Perhaps they start as a freshman and continue as a sophomore at one campus, and then they finish up at the, as a junior and senior at the other? Sure, because there's general education offered at both. So there's a lot of things that every PNW student's required to do no matter what their major is. So they can get a bunch of their general education courses out of the way. A lot of our kids come in with dual credit already, so they might come with a bunch of credits for college, which leads them to find out that they only have another year or year and a half of general education to do, gives them some time to figure out what they may or may not want to study. And then once they see what major they're interested in, then they can see which campus those are offered at, and then they make a decision from there. Do I need to live in housing? Can I still commute? What's available to me? So mm -hmm. we just want everyone to look at PNW as an option that's open and available to any type of student interested in any kind of experience. Now, Julie, since we've talked mainly here about making an opportunity available for high school students who are looking at attending college and the family members uh, coming along with them, 
What about the uh, the returning veterans? They've uh, gotten out of the service. They want to get to college. Maybe they're continuing classes. Maybe they're starting college from scratch. Uh, what kind of uh, opportunities open up when they come to the preview PNW uh, opportunities? Sure, absolutely. Um, we, I believe that Veteran Services has a table at the resource fair, and they would be happy to meet with any veterans that want to come and see what their opportunities would be like at PNW. So I know there's a Veteran Services office on both campuses. They can work with advising. They can help them figure out if they did start school and then served, if they need to come back, what kind of transfer credits do they have, what's available to them. We can definitely assist any veterans that are interested in pursuing an education at PNW. Now, if anybody would like to know more information about the upcoming preview PNW information sessions, where can they find it? They can find it at pnw.edu slash preview, and there's an actual link on our website to sign up. Then we have you in the system, and we can check you in that day and make sure that we have your, your packet and all the great things we're going to provide for you ready for you. You're also able to walk in. So it starts at 8 o'clock. It ends at 2.30. We provide lunch to you and breakfast. It's an all-day affair on our campus, and we want you to participate in the entire offering so that you really get a good feel for what it's like to be a student here. So if you come, can go to our website and sign up, great. If not, we would love for you to just walk in. This Saturday is the first one. Or there's plenty of time to sign up for the one November 13th. That's Julie Wejack with Purdue University Northwest Office of Undergraduate Admissions speaking with Lakeshore Public Radio's Chris Snowty. Regionally speaking with host Chris Nolte is on the air and online at 11 a.m. Mondays through Fridays on Lakeshore Public Radio and at lakeshorepublicradio.org. For the latest in local news and information, tune in Monday at 6 a.m. for Morning Edition with local host Chris Nolte. Lakeshore Update is supported by the listeners and members of Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM. Podcasts for Lakeshore Update are posted each Friday on our website, lakeshorepublicradio.org, as well as on NPR One. Make sure you search for WLPR and select us as your home station. Music for Lakeshore Update was written and produced by bensound.com. For Lakeshore Update, I'm D. Dotson.